The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams The podcast versions of the original Facebook Live readings during the coronavirus outbreak by Matthew Ogden, The Bearded Wit. Please bear in mind that as Facebook Live recordings, these are rough and ready, there are mistakes, there are a few trip-ups here and there, and there is laughter from the reader as he goes through and follows the humour himself along with you, the listener. We hope you enjoy listening to these and share liberally. Part 10 One of the major selling points of that wholly remarkable travel book, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, apart from its relative cheapness and the fact that it has the words Don't Panic written in large friendly letters on its cover, is its compendious and occasionally accurate glossary. The statistics relating to the geosocial nature of the universe, for instance, are deftly set out between pages 900, uh, sorry, between pages 938,324. Sorry, we'll try that again. The statistics relating to the geosocial nature of the universe, for instance, are deftly set out between pages 938,324 and 938,326. And the simplistic style in which they are written is partly explained by the fact that the editors, having to meet a publishing deadline, copied the information off the back of a packet of breakfast cereal, hastily embroidering it with a few footnotes in order to avoid prosecution under the incomprehensibly tortuous galactic copyright laws. It is interesting to note that later, sorry, it is interesting to note that a later and wilier editor sent the book backwards in time through a temporal warp and then successfully sued the breakfast cereal company for infringement of the very same laws. Here is an example. The Universe. Some information to help you live in it. 1. Area. Infinite. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy offers this definition of the word infinite. Infinite. Bigger than the biggest thing ever, and then some. Much bigger than that, in fact. Really amazingly immense. A totally stunning size. Real, wow, that's big time. Infinity is just so big that by comparison, bigness itself looks really titchy. Gigantic multiplied by colossal multiplied by staggeringly huge is the sort of concept we're trying to get across here. 2. Imports. None. It is impossible to import things into an infinite area, there being no outside to import things in from. 3. Exports. None. See imports. 4. Population. None. It is known that there are an infinite number of worlds simply because there is an infinite amount of space for them to be in. However, not every one of them is inhabited. Therefore, there must be a finite number of inhabited worlds. 
Any finite number divided by infinity is as near to nothing as makes no odds. So the average population of all the planets in the universe can be said, therefore, to be zero. From this, it follows that the population of the whole universe is also zero, and that any people you may meet from time to time are merely the products of a deranged imagination. 5. Monetary Units None. In fact, there are three freely convertible currencies in the galaxy, but none of them count. The Altarian dollar has recently collapsed. The Flanian pobble bead is only exchangeable for other Flanial pobble beads, and the Triganic pew has its own very special problems. Its exchange rate of eight ningis to one pew is simple enough, but since a ningi is a triangular rubber coin 6,800 miles along each side, no one has ever collected enough to own one pew. Ningis are not negotiable currency because the galactic banks refuse to deal in fiddling small change. From this basic premise, it's very simple to prove that the galactic banks are also the product of a deranged imagination. 6. Art. None. The function of art is to hold the mirror up to nature, and there simply isn't a mirror big enough. See point one. 7. Sex. None. Well, in fact, there is an awful lot of this, largely because of the total lack of money, trade, banks, art, or anything else that might keep the non-existent people in the universe occupied. However, it is not worth embarking on a long discussion uh, of it now, because it really is terribly complicated. For further information, see Guide Chapters 7, 9, 10, 11, 14, 16, 17, 19, 21 to 84, inclusive, and actually, in fact, most of the rest of the guide. The restaurant continued existing, but everything else had stopped. Temporal realastics held it and protected it in a nothingness that wasn't merely a vacuum. It was simply nothing. There was nothing in which a vacuum could be said to exist. The force-shielded dome had once again been rendered opaque. The party was over. The diners were leaving. Zarquan had vanished along with the rest of the universe. The time turbines were preparing to pull the restaurant back across the brink of time in readiness for the lunch sitting, and Max Quadlepline was back in his small curtained dressing room trying to raise his agent on the temperphone. In the car park stood the black ship, closed and silent. Into the car park came the late Mr. Hot Black Desiato, propelled along the moving catwalk by his bodyguard. They descended one of the tubes. They approached the limo ship. As, as they approached the limo ship, a hatchway swung down from its side, engaged the wheels of the wheelchair, and drew it inside. The bodyguard followed, and having seen his boss safely connected up to his death support system, moved up to the small cockpit. Here, 
he operated the remote control system, which activated the autopilot in the black ship lying next to the limo, thus causing great relief to Zaphod Beeblebrox, who had been trying to start the thing for over ten minutes. The black, no, the, the black ship glided smoothly forward out of its bay, turned and moved down the central causeway swiftly and quietly. At the end, it accelerated rapidly, flung itself into the temporal launch chamber, and began the long journey back into the distant past. The Milloway's lunch menu quotes, by permission, a passage from The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. The passage is this. The history of every major galactic civilization tends to pass through three distinct and recognisable phases, those of survival, inquiry, and sophistication, otherwise known as the how, why, and where phases. For instance, the first phase is characterised by the question, how can we eat? The second by the question, why do we eat? And the third by the question, where shall we have lunch? The menu goes on to suggest that Milliways, the restaurant at the end of the universe, would be a very agreeable and sophisticated answer to that third question. What it doesn't go on to say is that though it, it is that though it will usually take a large civilization many thousands of years to pass through the how, why, and where phases, small social groupings under stressful conditions can pass through them with extreme rapidity. How are we doing? said Arthur Dent. Badly, said Ford Prefect. Where are we going? said Trillian. I don't know, said Zaphod Beeblebrox. Why not? demanded Arthur Dent. Shut up, suggested Zaphod Beeblebrox and Ford Prefect. Basically what you're trying to say, said Arthur Dent, ignoring this suggestion, is that we are out of control. The ship was rocking and swaying sickeningly as Ford and Zaphod tried to wrest control from the autopilot. The engines howled and whined like tired children in a supermarket. It's the wild colour scheme that freaks me, said Zaphod, whose love affair with this ship had lasted almost three minutes into the flight. Every time you try to operate one of these weird black controls that are labelled in black on a black background, a little black light lights up black to let you know that you've done it. What is this? Some kind of galactic hyperus? The walls of the swaying cabin were also black. The ceiling was black. The seats, which were rudimentary since the only important trip this ship was de designed for, were supposed to be unmanned, were black. The control panel was black. The instruments were black. The little screws that held them in place were black. The thin, tufted nylon floor covering was black and when they lifted up a corner of it, they had discovered that the foam underlay also was black. Perhaps whoever designed it had eyes that responded to different wavelengths, offered Trillian. Or didn't have much imagination, muttered Arthur. Perhaps, said Marvin, 
he was feeling very depressed. In fact, though they weren't to know it, the decor had been chosen in honour of its owner's sad, lamented and tax-deductible condition. The ship gave a particularly sickening lurch. Take it easy, pleaded Arthur. You're making me space sick. Time sick, said Ford. We're plummeting backwards through time. Thank you, said Arthur. Now I really think I am going to be ill. Go ahead, said Zaphod. We could do with a little bit of colour around the place. This is meant to be a polite after-dinner conversation, is it? snapped Arthur. Zaphod left the controls to Ford to figure out and lurched over to Arthur. Look, Earthman, he said angrily, you've got a job to do, right? The question to the ultimate answer, right? What, that thing, said Arthur. I thought we'd forgotten about that. Not me, baby. Like the mice said, it's worth a lot of money in the right quarters, and it's all locked up in that head thing of yours. Yes, but, but nothing. Think about it. The meaning of life. We get our fingers on that, we can hold every shrink in the galaxy up to ransom. And that's worth a bundle. And I owe a mint. Arthur took a deep breath, without much enthusiasm. Right, he said. But where do we start? How should I know? They say the ultimate answer or whatever is 42. How am I supposed to know what the question is? Could be anything. I mean, what's six times seven? Zaphod looked at him hard for a moment. Then all his eyes blazed with excitement. 42, he cried. Arthur wiped his palm across his forehead. Yes, he said patiently, I know that. Zaphod's faces fell. I'm just saying the question could be anything at all, said Arthur. And I don't see how I'm supposed to know. Because, hissed Zaphod, you were there when your planet did the big firework. We have a thing on Earth, began Arthur. Had, corrected Zaphod, called tact. Oh, never mind. Look, I just don't know. <coughs> A low voice echoed dully around the cabin. I know, said Marvin. Ford called out from the controls he was still fighting a losing battle with. Stay out of this, Marvin. This is organism talk. It's printed in the Earthman's brainwave patterns, continued Marvin. But I don't suppose you'll be very interested in knowing that. You, you mean, said Arthur, you, you mean you can see into my head? Yes, said Marvin. Arthur stared in astonishment. And, he said, it amazes me how you can live in anything that small. Ah, said Arthur, abuse. Yes, confirmed Marvin. Ah, ignore him, said Zaphod, he's only making it up. Making it up, said Marvin, swilling his head in a parody of astonishment. 
Why should I want to make anything up? Life's bad enough as it is without wanting to invent any more of it. Marvin, said Trillian in the gentle, kindly voice that only she was still capable of assuming in talking to this misbegotten creature. If you knew all along, why then didn't you tell us? Marvin's head swivelled back to her. You didn't ask, he said simply. Well, we're asking you now, Metal Man, said Ford, turning round to look at him. At that moment, the ship suddenly stopped rocking and swaying. The engine pitch settled down to a gentle hum. Hey, Ford, said Zaphod, that sounds good. Have you worked out the controls on this boat? No, said Ford. I just stopped fiddling with them. I reckon we'd just go to wherever this ship is going and get off it fast. Yeah, right, said Zaphod. I could tell you weren't really interested, murmured Marvin to himself, and slumped into a corner and switched himself off. Trouble is, said Ford, that the one instrument in this whole ship that's giving any reading is worrying me. If I think, if it is what I think it is, and if it's saying what I think it's saying, then we've already gone too far back into the past, maybe as much as two million years before our own time. Zaphod shrugged. Time is bunk, he said. I wonder who this ship belongs to anyway, said Arthur. Me? said Zaphod. No, no, who it really belongs to. Really me, insisted Zaphod. Look, property is theft, right? Therefore theft is property. Therefore this ship is mine, okay? Tell the ship that, said Arthur. Zaphod strode over to the console. Ship, he said, banging on the panels. This is your new owner speaking to... He got no further. Several things happened at once. The ship dropped out of time travel mode and re-emerged into real space. All the controls on the console, which had been shut down for the time trip, now lit up. A large vision screen above the console winked into life revealing a wide starscape and a single, very large sun, dead ahead of them. None of these things, however, was responsible for the fact that Zaphod was at the same moment hurled bodily backwards against the rear of the cabin, as were all the others. They were hurled back by a single thunderous clap of noise that thudded out of the monitor speakers surrounding the vision screen. Slurp of tea. Down on the dry red world of Kakrafoon, in the middle of the vast rudlit desert, a, the stage technicians were testing the sound system. That is to say, the sound system was in the desert, 
not the technicians. They had retreated to the safety of Disaster Area's giant control ship, which hung in orbit some 400 miles above the surface of the planet, and they were testing the sound from there. Anyone within five miles of the speaker silos would not have survived the tuning up. If Arthur Dent had been within five miles of the speaker silos, then his expiring thought would have been that both in size and shape, the sound rig closely resembled Manhattan. Risen out of the silos, the neutron phase speaker stacks towered monstrously against the sky, obscuring the banks of plutonium reactors and the seismic amps behind them. Buried deep in concrete bunkers beneath the city of speakers lay the instruments that the musicians would control from their ship. The massive photon adratar, the bass detonator, and the mega-bang drum complex. It was going to be a noisy show. Aboard the giant control ship, all was activity and bustle. Hot Black Desiato's limo ship, a mere tadpole beside it, had arrived and docked, and the lamented gentleman was being transported down the high-vaulted corridors to meet the medium who was going to interpret his psychic impulses onto the Adjutar keyboard. A doctor, a logician, and a marine biologist had also just arrived, flown in at phenomenal expense from Maxi Megalon to try and reason with the lead singer, who had locked himself in the bathroom with a bottle of pills and was refusing to come out until it could be proved conclusively to him that he wasn't a fish. The bass player was busy machine-gunning his bedroom, and the drummer was nowhere on board. Frantic inquiries led to the discovery that he was standing on a beach on Santraginus V, over a hundred light-years away, where, he claimed, he had been happy for over half an hour now, and had found a small stone that would be his friend. The band's manager was profoundly relieved. It meant that for the seventeenth time on this tour, the drums would be played by a robot and that therefore the timing of the symbolistics would be right. The sub-ether was buzzing with the communications of the stage, te stage technicians testing the speaker channels, and this it was that was being relayed to the interior of the black ship. Its dazed occupants lay against the back wall of the cabin and listened to the voices on the monitor speakers. OK, channel 9 on power, said a voice. Testing channel 15. Another thumping crack of noise walloped through the ship. Channel 15, A-OK, -okay, said another voice. A third voice cut in. The black stunt ship's now in position, it said. It's looking good. Gonna be a great sundive. Stage computer online. A computer voice answered. Online, it said. Take control of the black ship. Black ship locked into trajectory program on standby. Testing channel 20. Zaphod leapt across the cabin and switched frequencies on the sub-ether receiver before the next mind-pulverizing mind noise hit them. He stood there, quivering. What? said Trillian in a small, quiet voice. Does sundive mean? It means, said Marvin, that the ship is going to dive into the sun.
sun, dive. It's very simple to understand. What do you expect if you steal Hot Black Desiato's stunt ship? How do you know? said Zaphod in a voice that would make a vegan snow lizard feel chilly. That this is Hot Black Desiato's stunt ship. Simple, said Marvin. I parked it for him. Then why didn't you tell us? You said you wanted excitement and adventure and really wild things. This is awful, said Arthur unnecessarily in the pause which followed. That's what I said, confirmed Marvin. On a different frequency, the sub-ether receiver had picked up a public broadcast, which now echoed round the cabin. Fine weather for the concert here this afternoon. I'm standing here in front of the stage, said the reporter, in the middle of the Rudlet Desert, and with the aid of hyperbinoptic glasses, I can just make out the huge audience cowering there on the horizon all around me. Behind the speaker stacks rise like a sheer cliff face, and high above me the sun is shining away and doesn't know what's going to hit it. The environmentalist lobby do know what's going to hit it, and they claim that the concert will cause earthquakes, tidal waves, hurricanes, irreparable damage to the atmosphere, and all the usual things that environmentalists usually go on about. But I've just had a report that a representative of Disaster Area met with the environmentalists at lunchtime and had them all shot. So now nothing lies in the way of... Zaphod switched it off. He turned to Ford. You know what I'm thinking? He said. I think so, said Ford. Tell me what you think I'm thinking. I think you're thinking it's time we got off this ship. I think you're right, said Zaphod. I think you're right, said Ford. How? said Arthur. Quiet! Said, Zaphod, said Ford and Zaphod, we're thinking. So, this is it. We're going to die. I wish you'd stop saying that, said Ford. It is worth repeating at this point the theories that Ford had come up with on his first encounter with human beings to account for their peculiar habit of continually stating and restating the very, very obvious, as in, it's a nice day, or you're very tall, or so this is it, we're going to die. His first theory was that if human beings didn't keep exercising their lips, their mouths probably seized up. After a few months of observation, he'd come up with a second theory, which was this. If human beings don't keep exercising their lips, their brains start working. In fact, this second theory is more literally true of the Belserabon people of Cacrafoon. The Belserabon people used to cause great resentment and insecurity amongst neighbouring races by being one of the most enlightened, accomplished, and above all, quiet civilizations in the galaxy. 
As punishment for this behaviour, which was held to be offensively self-righteous and provocative, a galactic tribunal inflicted on them that most, that, that most cruel of all social diseases, telepathy, otherwise known as Facebook. Consequently, in order to prevent themselves broadcasting even every slightest thought that crosses their minds to anyone and everyone within a five-mile radius, they now have to talk very loudly and continuously about the weather, their little aches and pains, the match this afternoon, and what a noisy place Cacrophoon has suddenly become. Another method of temporarily blotting out their minds is to play host to a disaster area concert. The timing of the concert was critical. The ship had to begin its dive before the concert began in order to hit the sun six minutes and 37 seconds before the climax of the song to which it related, so that the light of the solar flares had time to travel out to Cacrophoon. The ship had already been diving for several minutes by the time that Ford Prefect had completed his search of the other compartments of the black ship. He burst back into the cabin. The son of Cacrophoon loomed terrifyingly large on the vision screen, its blazing white inferno effusing hydrogen nuclei growing moment by moment as the ship plunged onwards, unheeding the thumping and banging of Zaphod's hands on the control panel. Arthur and Trillian had the fixed expressions of rabbits on a night road who think that the very best way of dealing with approaching headline, headlights is to stare them out. Zaphod spun round, wild-eyed. Ford, he said, how many escape capsules are there? None, said Ford. Zaphod gibbered. Did you count them? he said. Twice, said Ford. Did you manage to raise the stage crew on the radio? Yeah, said Zaphod bitterly. I said there were a whole bunch of people on board, and they said to say hi to everybody. Ford goggled. Didn't you tell them who you were? Oh, yeah. They said it was a great honor. That and something about my restaurant bill and my ex executors. Ford pushed Arthur aside roughly and leaned forward over the control console. Does none of this function, he said savagely. All overridden. Smash the autopilot. Find it first. Nothing connects. There was a moment, cold silence. Arthur was stumbling round the back of the cabin. He stopped suddenly. Incidentally, he said, what does teleport mean? Another moment passed. Slowly, the others turned to face him. Probably the wrong moment to ask, said Arthur. I just remember hearing you use the word a short while ago, and I only bring it up because... Where, said Ford Prefect, does it say teleport? Well, just over here, in fact, said Arthur, pointing at a dark control box in the rear of the cabin, just under the word emergency and above the word system and beside the sign saying, out of order. In the pandemonium that instantly followed, 
The only action to follow was that of Ford Prefect, lunging across the cabin to the small black box that Arthur had indicated and stabbing repeatedly at the single small black button set into it. A six-foot square panel slid open beside it, revealing a compartment which resembled a multiple shower unit that had found a new function in life as an electrician's junk store. Half-finished wiring hung from the ceiling. A jumble of abandoned components lay strewn on the floor, and the programming panel lolled out of the cavity in the wall into which it should have been secured. A junior disaster area accountant visiting the shipyard where this ship was being constructed had demanded to know of the works foreman why the hell they were fitting an extremely expensive teleport into a ship which had only one important journey to make, and that unmanned. The foreman had explained that the teleport was available at a 10% discount, and the accountant had explained that this was immaterial. The foreman had explained that it was the finest, most powerful and sophisticated teleport that money could buy, and the accountant had explained that the money did not wish to buy it. The foreman had explained that people would still need to enter and leave the ship, and the accountant had explained that the ship sported a perfectly serviceable door. The foreman had explained that the accountant could go and boil his head and the accountant had explained to the foreman that the thing approaching him rapidly from his left was a knuckle sandwich. After the explanation had been concluded, work was discontinued on the teleport, which subsequently passed unnoticed on the invoice as sundry sundry expenses and at five times the original price. Hell's donkeys! muttered Zaphod, as he and Ford attempted to sort through the tangle of wiring. After a moment or so, Ford told him to stand back. He tossed a coin into the teleport and jiggled a switch on the lolling control panel. With a crackle and spit of light, the coin vanished. That much of it works, said Ford. However, there is no guidance system. Uh, hmm. A matter transference teleport with no guidance programming could put you, well, anywhere. The son of Cacrafoon loomed huge on the screen. Who cares? said Zaphod. We go where we go. And, said Ford, There is no auto system. We couldn't all go. Someone would have to stay and operate it. A solemn moment shuffled past. The sun loomed larger and larger. Hey, Marvin, kid, said Zaphod brightly. How are you doing? Very badly, I suspect. Said, Mar- said Marvin. A shortish while later, the concert on Cacrafoon reached an unexpected climax. 
The black ship, with its single morose occupant, had plunged on schedule into the nuclear furnace of the sun. Massive solar flares licked out from it millions and millions of miles into space, thrilling and, in a few cases, spilling the dozen or so flare riders who had been coasting close to the surface of the sun in anticipation of the moment. Moments before the flare light reached Cacrafoon, the pounding desert cracked along a deep fault line. A huge and hitherto undetected underground river, lying far beneath the surface, gushed to the surface, to be followed seconds later by the eruption of millions of tons of boiling lava that flowed hundreds of feet into the air, instantaneously vaporising the river, both above and below the surface, in an explosion that echoed to the far side of the world and back again. To those very few who witnessed the event and survived swear that the whole hundred thousand square miles of the desert rose into the air like a mile-thick pancake, flipped itself over, and fell back down again. At that moment, that precise moment, the solar radiation from the flares filtered through the clouds of vaporized water and struck the ground. A year later, the hundred thousand square mile desert was thick with flowers. The structure of the atmosphere around the planet was subtly altered. The sun blazed less harshly in the summer. The cold bit less bitterly in the winter. Pleasant rain fell more often, and slowly the desert world of Cacrafoon became a paradise. Even the telepathic power with which the people of Cacrafoon had been cursed was permanently dispersed by the force of the explosion. A spokesman for Disaster Area, the one who had had all the environmentalists shot, was later quoted as saying that it had been a good gig. Many people spoke movingly of the healing powers of music. A few sceptical scientists examined the records of the events more closely and claimed that they had discovered faint vestiges of a vast artificially induced improbability field drifting in from a nearby region of space. Arthur woke up and instantly regretted it. Hangovers he'd had, but never anything on this scale. This was it. This was the big one. This was the ultimate pits. Matter transference beams, he decided, were not as much fun as, say, a good, good solid kick in the head. Being for the moment unwilling to move on account of a dull, stomping throb he was experiencing, he lay a while and thought. The trouble with most forms of transport, he thought, is basically one of them's not being worth... Sorry. The trouble with most forms of transport, he thought, is basically one of them not being worth all the bother. On Earth, when there had been an Earth, before it was demolished to make way for a new hyperspace bypass, the problem had been with cars. 
The disadvantages involved in pulling lots of black sticky slime out from the ground, where it had been safely hidden out of harm's way, turning it into a tar to cover the land with, smoke to fill the air with, and pouring the rest into the sea, all seemed to outweigh the advantages of being able to get more quickly from one place to another, particularly when the place you arrived at had probably become, as a result of this, very similar to the place you had left, i.e. covered with tar, full of smoke, and short of fish. And what about matter transference beams? Any form of transport which involved tearing you apart atom by atom, flinging those atoms through the subether, and then jamming them back together again just when they were getting their first taste of freedom for years, had to be bad news. Many people had thought exactly this before Arthur Dent, and even gone to the lengths of writing songs about it. Here is one that used regularly to be chanted by huge crowds outside the Sirius Cybernetics Corporation teleport systems factory on Happy World 3. I am not going to sing it. Alderboran's great, okay. Algol's pretty neat. Beetlejuice's pretty girls will knock you off your feet. They'll do anything you like, real fast and then real slow. But if you have to take me apart to get me there, then I don't want to go. Singing, take me apart, take me apart, what a way to roam. And if you have to take me apart to get there, I'd rather stay at home. Sirius is paved with gold, so I've heard it said. By nuts who then go on to say, see Tau before you're dead. I'll gladly take the high road, or even take the low. But if you have to take me apart to get me there, then I, for one, won't go. Singing, take me apart, take me apart, you must be off your head. And if you try to take me apart to get me there, I'll stay right here in bed. And so on. Another favourite song was much shorter. I teleported home one night with Ron and Sid and Meg. Ron stole Meggie's heart away and I got Sidney's leg. Arthur felt the waves of pain slowly receding, though he was still aware of a dull, stomping throb. Slowly, carefully, he stood up. Can you hear a dull, stomping throb? said Ford Prefect. Arthur spun round and wobbled uncertainly. Ford Prefect was approaching, looking red-eyed and pasty. Where are we? gasped Arthur. Ford looked around. They were standing in a long, curving corridor, which stretched out of sight in both directions. The outer steel wall, which was painted in that sickly shade of pale green which they use in schools, hospitals and mental asylums to keep the inmates subdued, curved over the tops of their heads to where it met the inner perpendicular wall, which, oddly enough, was covered in dark brown hessian wool weave. The floor was of dark green ribbed rubber. Ford moved over to a very thick, dark, transparent panel set in the outer wall. It was several layers deep, yet through it he could see pinpoints of distant stars. I think we're on a spaceship of some kind, he said. Down the, the corridor came the sound 
of a dull, stomping throb. Trillion? called Arthur nervously. Zaphod? Ford shrugged. Nowhere about, he said. I've looked. They could be anywhere. An unprogrammed teleport can throw you light years in any direction. Judging by the way I feel, I should think we've travelled a very long way indeed. How do you feel? Bad. Do you think that where they are, how they are, there's no way we can know, and no way we can do anything about it? Do what I do. What? Don't think about it. Arthur turned this thought over in his mind, reluctantly saw the wisdom of it, tucked it up and put it away. He took a deep breath. Footsteps! exclaimed Ford suddenly. Where? That noise! That stomping throb! Pounding feet! Listen! Arthur listened. The noise echoed around the corridor at them from an indeterminate distance. It was the muffled sound of pounding footsteps, and it was noticeably louder. Let's move, said Ford sharply. They both moved, in opposite directions. Not that way, said Ford. That's where they're coming from. No, it's not, said Arthur. They're coming from that way. They're not that. They both stopped. They both turned. They both listened intently and they both agreed with each other. They both set off in opposite directions again. Fear gripped them. From both directions the noise was getting louder. A few yards to their left, another corridor ran at right angles to the inner wall. They ran to it and hurried along it. It was dark, immensely long, and as they passed down it, gave them the impression that it was getting colder and colder. Other corridors gave off it to the left and right, each very dark and each subjecting them to sharp blasts of icy air as they passed. They stopped for a moment in alarm. Further down the corridor they went, the louder became the sound of pounding feet. They pressed themselves back against the cold wall and listened furiously. The cold, the dark, and the drumming of disembodied feet was getting to them. Badly. Ford shivered, partly with cold, but partly with the memory of stories his favourite mother used to tell him when he was a mere slip of a Betelgeusian, ankle-high to an Arcturian mega-grasshopper. Stories of death ships, haunted hulks that roamed restlessly around the obscurer regions of deep space, infested with demons or the ghosts of forgotten crews. Stories, too, of incautious travellers who found and entered such ships. Stories of... Then Ford remembered the brown hessian wool weave in the first corridor and pulled himself together. However ghosts and demons may choose to decorate their death hulks, he thought to himself, he would lay any money you liked. It wasn't with hessian wool weave. He grasped Arthur by the arm. Back the way we came he said firmly, and they started to retrace their steps. A moment later, they leapt like startled lizards down the nearest corridor junction as the owners of the drumming feet suddenly hove into view directly in front of them. 
hidden behind the corner, they goggled in amazement as about two dozen overweight men and women pounded past them in tracksuits, panting and wheezing in a manner that would make a heart surgeon gibber. Ford Prefect stared after them. Joggers! he hissed, as the sound of their feet echoed away up and down the network of corridors. Joggers? whispered Arthur Dent. Joggers? said Ford Prefect, with a shrug. The corridor they were concealed in was not like the others. It was very short, and ended at a large steel door. Ford examined it, discovered the opening mechanism, and pushed it wide. The first thing that hit their eyes was what appeared to be a coffin. And the next 4,999 things that hit their eyes were also coffins. The vault was low-ceilinged, dimly lit, and gigantic. At the far end, about 300 yards away, an archway let through to what appeared to be a similar chamber, similarly occupied. Ford let out a low whistle as he stepped down onto the floor of the vault. Wild, he said. What's so great about dead people? asked Arthur, nervously stepping down after him. Dunno, said Ford. Let's find out, shall we? On closer inspection, the coffins seemed to be more like sarcophagi. They stood about waist-high and were constructed of what appeared to be white marble, which is almost certainly what it was, something that only appeared to be white marble. The tops were semi-translucent, and through them could dimly be perceived the features of their late and presumably lamented occupants. They were humanoid, and had clearly left the troubles of whatever world it was they came from far behind them. But beyond that, little else could be discerned. Rolling slowly round the floor between the sarcophagi was a heavy, oily white gas, which Arthur at first thought might be there to give the place a little atmosphere, until he discovered that it also froze his, his ankles. The sarcophagi, too, were intensely cold to the touch. Ford suddenly crouched down beside one of them. He pulled a corner of his towel out of his satchel and started to rub furiously at something. Look, there's a, there's a plaque on this one, he explained to Arthur. It's frosted over. He rubbed the frost clear and examined the engraved characters. To Arthur, they looked like the footprints of a spider that had had one too many of whatever it is that spiders have on a night out. But Ford instantly recognised an early form of galactic easy read. It says, Golgofringen Arkship, Ship B. Hold seven, telephone sanitizer, second class, and a serial number. A telephone sanitizer, said Arthur. A dead telephone sanitizer? Best kind. But what, what's he doing here? Ford peered at the top 
poured through the sorry feared peer try that again ford peered through the top at the figure within not a lot he said and suddenly flashed one of those grins of his which always made people think he'd been overdoing things recently and should perhaps try to get some rest he scampered over to another sarcophagus a moment's brisk towel work and he announced this one's a dead hairdresser hoopy the next sarcophagus revealed itself to be the last resting place of an advertising account executive the one after that contained a second-hand car salesman, third class. An inspection hatch let them into the floor, sorry, an inspection hatch let into the floor suddenly caught Ford's attention, and he squatted down to unfasten it, thrashing away at the clouds of freezing gas that threatened to envelop him. A thought occurred to Arthur. If these are just coffins, he said, why are they kept so cold? Or, indeed, why are they kept anyway? said Ford, tugging the hatchway open. The gas poured down through it. Why, in fact, is anyone going to all the trouble and expense of carting 5,000 dead bodies through space? 10,000, said Arthur, pointing at the archway through which the next chamber was dimly visible. Ford stuck his head down through the hatchway. He looked up again. Fifteen thousand, he said. There's another lot down here. Fifteen million, said a voice. That's a lot, said Ford. A lot, a lot. Turn around slowly, barked the voice, and put your hands up. Any other move, and I blast you into tiny, tiny bits. Hello? said Ford, turning round slowly, putting his hands up and not making any other move. Why, said Arthur Dent, isn't anyone ever pleased to see us? Standing silhouetted in the doorway through which they had entered the vault was the man who wasn't pleased to see them. His displeasure was communicated partly by the barking, hectoring quality of his voice, and partly by the viciousness with which he waved a long silver killer zap gun at them. The designer of the gun had clearly not been instructed to beat around the bush. Make it evil, he'd been told. Make it totally clear that this gun has a right end and a wrong end. Make it totally clear to anyone standing at the wrong end that things are going badly for them. If that means sticking all sorts of spikes and prongs and blackened bits all over it, then so be it. This is not a gun for hanging over the fireplace or sticking in the umbrella stand. It is a gun for going out and making people miserable with. Ford and Arthur looked at the gun unhappily. The man with the gun moved around from the door and circled them. As he came into the light, they could see that his black and gold uniform they could see his black and gold uniform on which the buttons were so highly polished that they shone with an intensity that would have made an approaching motorist flash his lights in annoyance. He gestured at the door. Out, he said. People who can supply that amount of firepower don't need to supply verbs as well. Ford and Arthur went out. Closely followed by the wrong end of the killer zap gun and the buttons.
Turning into the corridor, they were jostled by 24 oncoming joggers, now showered and changed, who swept past them on into the vault. Arthur turned to watch them in confusion. "'Move!' screamed their captor. Arthur moved. Ford shrugged and moved. In the vault, the joggers went to twenty-four empty sarcophagi along the side wall, opened them, climbed in, and fell into twenty-four dreamless sleeps. Uh, Captain? Uh, uh, yes, number one? Uh, just had a sort of report thingy from number two. Oh, dear. High up on the bridge of the ship, the captain stared out into the infinite reaches of space with mild irritation. From where he reclined beneath a wide-domed bubble, he could see before and above him the vast panorama of stars through which they were moving, a panorama that had thinned out noticeably during the course of the voyage. Turning and looking backwards over the vast two-mile bulk of the ship, he could see the far denser mass of stars behind them, which seemed to be forming an almost solid band. This was the view through to the galactic centre from which they were travelling, and indeed had been travelling for years, at a speed which he couldn't quite remember at the moment, but he knew it was terribly fast. It was something approaching the speed of something or other, or, or, or was it three times the speed of something else? Jolly impressive, anyway. He peered into the bright distance behind the ship, looking for something. He did this every few minutes or so, but never found what he was looking for. He didn't let him worry. They didn't let it worry him, though. The scientist chaps had been very insistent that everything was going to be perfectly all right, providing nobody panicked and everybody got on and just did their bit in an orderly fashion. He wasn't panicking. As far as he was concerned, everything was going splendidly. He dabbed at his shoulder with a large, frothy sponge. It crept back into his mind that he was feeling mildly irritated about something. Now, what was that all about? A slight cough alerted him to the fact that the ship's first officer was still standing nearby. Nice chap, number one. Not of the very brightest, had the odd spot of difficulty doing up his shoelaces, but jolly good officer material for all that. The captain wasn't a man to kick a chap when he was bending over trying to do up his shoelaces, however long it took him. Not like that ghastly number two, strutting about all over the place, polishing his buttons, issuing reports every hour. Ship's still moving, Captain. Still on course, Captain. Oxygen level still being maintained, Captain. Give it a miss, was the Captain's vote. Ah, yes, that was the thing that had been irritating him. He peered down at number one. Yes, Captain, he was shouting something or other about having found some prisoners. The captain thought about this. Seemed pretty unlikely to him, but he wasn't one to stand in his officer's way. Well, perhaps that'll keep him happy for a bit, he said. He's always wanted some. Ford Prefect and Arthur Dent trudged onwards up to the ship's apparently and uh, sorry, honestly, bleh. 
Ford Prefect and Arthur Dent trudged onwards up the ship's apparently endless corridors. Number two marched behind them, barking the occasional order about not making any false moves or trying any funny stuff. They seemed to have passed at least a mile of continuous brown hessian wool weave. Finally, they reached a large steel door, which slid open when number two shouted at it. They entered. To the eyes of Ford Prefect and Arthur Dent, the most remarkable thing about the ship's bridge was not the 50-foot diameter hemispherical dome which covered it, and through which the dazzling display of stars shone down on them. To people who have eaten at this restaurant at the end of the universe, such wonders are commonplace. Nor was it the bewildering array of instruments that crowded the long circumferential wall around them. To Arthur, this was exactly what spaceships were traditionally supposed to look like, and to Ford, it looked thoroughly antiquated. It confirmed his suspicions that Disaster Ares' stunt ship had taken them back at least a million, if not two million, years before their own time. The one thing that really caught them off balance was the bath. The bath stood on a six-foot pedestal of rough-hewn blue-water crystal and was of a baroque monstrosity type not often seen outside the Maximegalon Museum of Diseased Imaginings. An intestinal jumble of plumbing had been picked out in gold leaf rather than decently buried at midnight in an unmarked grave. The taps and shower attachment would have made a gargoyle jump. As the dominant centrepiece of a starship, it was terribly wrong. And it was, with the embittered air of a man who knew this, that number two approached it. Captain, sir, he shouted through clenched teeth. A difficult trick, but he'd had years during which to perfect it. A large, genial face and a genial foam-covered arm popped up above the rim of the monstrous bath. "'Ah, hello, number two, said the captain, waving a cheery sponge. "'Having a nice day?' Number two snapped even further to attention than he already was. "'I bought you the two prisoners I located in Freezer Bay 7, sir!' he yapped. Ford and Arthur coughed in confusion. Uh, hello, they said. The captain beamed at them. So, number two really had found some prisoners. Well, good for him, thought the captain. Nice to see a chap doing what he's best at. Oh, hello there, he said to them. I excuse me, not getting up, just having a quick bath. Well, gin and tonics all round, then. Look in the fridge, number one. Certainly, sir. It is a curious fact, and one to which no one quite knows how much important to it, importance to attach, that something like 85% of all known worlds in the galaxy, be they primitive or highly advanced, have invented a drink called gin and tonics, or gin and tonics, or gin and tonics, or any one of a thousand or more variations of the same phonetic theme. The drinks themselves are not the same, and vary between the Sivolvian chinantomings, which is ordinary water served at slightly above room temperature, and the Gagrakakan chinantonics, which kills cows at a hundred paces, 
and in fact is the one common factor. And in fact, the one common factor between all of them, beyond the fact that the names sound the same, is that they were all invented and named before the worlds concerned made contact with any other worlds. What could be made of this fact? It exists in total isolation. As far as any theory of structural linguistics is concerned, it is right off the graph, and yet it persists. Old structural linguists get very angry when young structural linguists go on about it. Young structural linguists get deeply excited about it and stay up late at night, convinced that they're very close to something of profound importance, and end up becoming old structural linguists before their time, getting very angry with the young ones. Structural linguistics is a bitterly divided and unhappy discipline, and a large number of its practitioners spend too many nights drowning their problems in, <laughs> in gin and tonics. Number two, stood before the captain's bathtub, trembling with frustration. Don't you want to interrogate the prisoners, sir? He squeaked. Captain peered at him in, in bemusement. Why on Golga Frincham would I want to do that? He said. To get some information out of them, sir, to find out why they came here. Oh, no, 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 said the captain. I, I expect they just dropped in for a quick gin and tonics, didn't you? But, sir, they're my prisoners. I must interrogate them. The captain looked at them doubtfully. Oh, all right, he said. If you must, ask them what they want to drink. A hard cold gleam came into number two's eyes. He advanced slowly on Ford Prefect and Arthur Dent. All right, you scum, he growled. You vermin. He jabbed Ford with the killer zap gun. Steady on number two, admonished the captain gently. What do you want to drink? Number two screamed. Well, the uh, gin and tonic sounds very nice to me, said Ford. What about you, Arthur? Arthur blinked. What? Oh, uh, yes, he said. With ice or without? Bellowed number two. Oh, with, please, said Ford. Lemon? Yes, please, said Ford. And... Do you have any of those little biscuits? You know, the cheesy ones. I'm asking the questions, howled number two, his body quaking with apoplectic fury. Uh, number two, said the captain softly. Sir? Push off, would you? There's a good chap. I'm trying to have a relaxing bath. Number two's eyes narrowed and became what are known in the shouting and killing people trade as cold slits. The idea presumably being to give your opponent the impression that you have lost your glasses or are having difficulty keeping awake. Why this is frightening is as an unyet resolved problem. He advanced on the captain. His, number two's, mouth, a thin, hard line. Again, tricky to know why this is understood as fighting behaviour. 
If, whilst wandering through the jungle of trial, you were suddenly to come across the fabled ravenous bugblatter beast, you would have reason to be grateful if its mouth was a thin, hard line, rather than, as it usually is, a gaping mass of slavering fangs. May I remind you, sir, hissed number two at the captain, that you have now been in that bath for over three years. This final shot delivered, number two spun on his heel and stalked off to a corner to practice darting eye movements in the mirror. The captain squirmed in his bath. He gave Ford Prefect a lame smile. Well, you need to relax in a job like mine, he said. Um, sorry, I've lost my place. Here we go. Yes, you need to relax in a job like mine, he said. Ford slowly lowered his hands. It provoked no reaction. Arthur lowered his. Treading very slowly and very carefully, Ford moved over to the bath pedestal. He patted it. Nice, he lied. He wondered if it was safe to grin. Very slowly and carefully, he grinned. It was safe. Uh, he said to the captain. Yes, said the captain. I wonder, said Ford, could I ask you actually what your job is, in fact? A hand tapped him on the shoulder. He spun round. It was the first officer. Your drinks, he said. Ah, thank you, said Ford. He and Arthur took their gin and tonics. Arthur sipped his and was surprised to discover it tasted very like whiskey and soda. I mean, I couldn't help noticing, said Ford, also taking a sip, the bodies in the hold. Bodies? said the captain in surprise. Ford paused and thought to himself. Never take anything for granted, he thought. Could it be that the captain doesn't know he's got 15 million dead bodies on his ship? The captain was nodding cheerfully at him. He also appeared to be playing with a rubber duck. Ford looked around. Number two was staring at him in the mirror, but only for an instant. His eyes were constantly on the move. The first officer was just standing there holding the drinks tray and smiling benignly. Bodies? said the captain again. Ford licked his lips. Yes, he said, all those dead telephone sanitizers and account executives, you know, down in the hold. The captain stared at him. Suddenly he threw back his head and laughed. Oh, oh, they're not dead, he said. Oh, good Lord, no, 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 they're just frozen. They're going to be revived. Ford did something he very rarely did. He blinked. Arthur seemed to come out of a trance. You mean you've got a hold full of frozen hairdressers, he said. Yes, 
said the captain. Millions of them. Hairdressers, tired TV producers, insurance salesmen, personnel officers, security guards, public relations executives, management consultancies, you name it, we're going to colonise another planet. Ford wobbled very slightly. Exciting, isn't it? said the captain. What? With that lot? said Arthur. Ah, now don't misunderstand me, said the captain. We're just one of the ships in the Ark fleet. We're the B-Ark, you see. Sorry, uh, could I just ask you to run a little bit of warm water for me? Arthur obliged, and a cascade of pink frothy water swirled around the bath. The captain let out a sigh of pleasure. Oh, thank you so much, my dear fellow. Do, do help yourselves to more drinks, of course. Ford tossed down his drink, took the bottle from the first officer's tray, and refilled his glass to the top. What, he said, is a bee-ark? This is, said the captain, and swished the foamy water around joyfully with the duck. Yes, said Ford, but... Well, what happened, you see, was, said the captain, our planet, the world from which we have come, was, so to speak, doomed. Doomed? Oh, yes. So, what everyone thought was, let's pack the whole population into some gigantic spaceships and go and settle on another planet. Having told this much of his story, he settled back with a satisfied grunt. You mean a less doomed one, prompted Arthur. What did you say, dear fellow? A less doomed planet you were going to settle on. Are we going to settle Oh, yes, yes, it was decided to build three ships, you see, three arcs in space, and I I'm not boring you, am I? No, 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 said Ford firmly. It's fascinating. You know, it's delightful, reflected the captain, to have someone else to talk to for a change. Number two's eyes darted feverishly about the room again and then settled back on the mirror, like a pair of flies briefly distracted from their favourite piece of month-old meat. Trouble is, with a long journey like this, continued the captain, is that you end up just talking to yourself a lot, which gets terribly boring because half the time you know what you're going to say next. Only half the time, asked Arthur in surprise. The captain thought for a moment. Yes, about half, I'd say. Anyway, where's the soap? He fished around and found it. Yes, so anyway, he resumed, the idea was that we get into the first ship. Uh, the A ship would go, sorry, in, in, the, the idea was that into the first ship, the A ship would go all the brilliant leaders, the scientists, the great artists, you know, all the achievers. And then into the third, or C ship, would go all the people who did the actual work, you know, who made things and did things. And then into the B ship, that's us, would go everyone else, the middlemen, you see. He smiled happily at them. And we were sent off first, he concluded, and hummed a little bathing tune. 
The little bathing tune, which had been composed for him by one of the world's most exciting and prolific jingle writers, who was currently asleep in hold 36, some 900 yards behind them, covered what would otherwise have been an awkward moment of silence. Ford and Arthur shuffled their feet and furiously avoided each other's eyes. Um, said Arthur after a moment. What exactly was it that was wrong with your planet, then? Oh, oh, it was doomed, as I said, said the captain. Apparently, it was going to crash into the sun or something. Or, or maybe was it that the moon was going to crash into us? Something of that kind. Absolutely terrifying prospect, whatever it was. Oh, said the first officer suddenly, uh, I thought it was that the planet was going to be invaded by a gigantic swarm of twelve-foot piranha bees. Wasn't that it? Number two spun around, eyes ablaze with a cold, hard light that only comes with the amount of practice he was prepared to put in. That's not what I was told, he said. My commanding officer told me that the entire planet was in imminent danger of being eaten by an enormous mutant star goat. Oh, really? said Ford Prefect. Yes, a monstrous creature from the pit of hell, with scything teeth ten thousand miles long, breath that would boil oceans, claws that would tear continents from their roots, a thousand eyes that burned like the sun, slavering jaws a million miles across, a monster such as you have never, never, ever. And they made sure they sent your lot off first, did they? inquired Arthur. Oh, yes, said the captain. Well, everyone said, very nicely, I thought, that it was very important for morale to feel that they would be arriving on a planet where they could be sure of a good haircut and where the phones were clean. Oh, yes, agreed Ford. I can see that would be very important. And the other ships, um, they followed on after you, eh? For a moment, the captain did not answer. He twisted around in his bath and gazed backwards over the huge bulk of the ship towards the bright galactic centre. He squinted into the inconceivable distance. Ha! Ah, well, it's funny you should say that, he said, and allowed himself a slight frown at Ford Prefect, because, curiously enough... We haven't heard a peep out of them since we left five years ago. But they must be behind us somewhere. He peered off into the distance again. Ford peered with him and gave a thoughtful frown. Unless, of course, he said softly, they were e eaten by the goat. Ah, yes, said the captain, with a slight hesitancy creeping into his voice. The goat! His eyes passed over the solid shapes of the instruments and computers that lined the bridge. They winked away innocently at him. He stared out at the stars, but none of them said a word. He glanced at his first and second officers, but they seemed lost in their own thoughts for a moment. He glanced at Ford Prefect, who raised his eyebrows at him. It's a funny thing, you know, said the captain at last. 
But now that I actually come to tell the story to someone else, I mean, does it strike you as odd, number one? Uh, said number one. Well, said Ford, I can see that you've got a lot of things that you're going to want to talk about. So, thanks for the drinks, and if you could sort of just drop us off at the nearest convenient planet. Ah, well, that's a little difficult, you see, said the captain, because our trajectory thingy was preset before we left Golgofrinchen. I think partly because I'm not very good with figures. You mean we're stuck here on this ship, exclaimed Ford, suddenly losing patience with the whole charade. You mean you were meant, you mean, when are you meant to be reaching this planet that you're supposed to be colonising? Oh, we're nearly there, I think, said the captain. Any second now? It's probably time I was getting out of this bath, in fact. Oh, I don't know, though. Why, why stop just when I'm enjoying it? So we're actually going to land in a minute, said Arthur. Well, not so much land, in fact. Not actually land as such, no. Um, what are you talking about? asked Ford sharply. Well said the captain, picking his way through the words very carefully. I think, as far as I can remember, we were programmed to crash on it. Crash! shouted Ford and Arthur. Uh, yes, said the captain. Yes, it's all part of the plan, I think. There was a terribly good reason for it, which I can't quite remember at the moment. It was something to do with... Uh, Ford exploded. You're a load of useless bloody loonies, he shouted. Ah, yes, that was it, beamed the captain. That was the reason. And that, at 20 to 11, is where we will leave it. Thank you very much, everybody, for your company again this evening. I hope you've enjoyed it. Um, bear in mind that I will be posting, I've already started posting, we've got episode one, but I'm putting all of these onto uh, the podcast as well. Um, but thanks very much for your company again this evening. Um, do share, spread the word, let everybody know. Um, and I will see you same time, same place, uh, hopefully without any technical hitches. So starting at nine next Sunday. But thanks again for this evening, everybody. Uh, I love doing this and it's uh, really nice to have your company. So take care and see you for episode 11 next week. Bye-bye.